0: 1972, Joey Gallo killed in Little Italy during dinner at Umberto's Clam House. They get there by violence, and often as not, they leave by violence. Between 3 and $5 million in cash and valuables was taken from the Lufthansa cargo terminal out at Kennedy Airport. So I could give you guys a half a million dollars a year without a problem. New York City is a war zone for mobsters and their targets. Hello everyone, and welcome into episode 46 of The Black Hand, an organized crime history podcast. I'm your host, Bliss Grieve, and on today's show, we're going to be talking about one of the most prolific American mob bosses of all time, in Carlo Gambino. He came up in the Young Turk faction, working for both the Diakia and Masseria mob organizations before being made a capo in the Mangano family, following the creation of the Five Families. He continued to garner power, becoming Albert Anastasia's consigliere, then underboss, before Gambino took him out and ran the family that bears his name for nearly 20 years. Before we get started, if you want to support the show, please rate it and go follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at TheBlackHandPod, and please feel free to reach out. Also, consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at TheBlackHandPod as well, the link's in the description. But without further ado, let's get right into today's episode. Carlo Gambino was born on August 24th, 1902 in Palermo, Sicily, to Tommaso Gambino and Felice Castellano. And his father belonged to a Sicilian mafia gang from Passo di Reggiano. And though not much is known about his early life, it's alleged that Gambino was a teenage hitman in Sicily and was even made in Italy by a local crime boss named Vito Casio Ferra before coming to America. But he eventually did make it over on December 23, 1921, when he entered Norfolk, Virginia as a stowaway on the SS Vincenzo Florio. His cousins, the Castellanos, were already employed by one of New York's early crime bosses named Salvatore Diakia, so Gambino immediately went to work for him. And in this emerging organized crime scene, Gambino quickly fell in with a faction known as the Young Turks, which included other future mob heavyweights like Lucky Luciano, Vito Genovese, and Frank Costello. But on October 10th, 1928, when Salvatore Achille was shot dead on Avenue A in Manhattan, Gambino decided to shift his allegiance to his rival, Joe Masseria. Regardless, Gambino continued with business as usual, and in 1930, was arrested in Lawrence, Massachusetts, as a suspicious person. The charge was dismissed, but he was arrested just a month later in Brockton, Massachusetts, on a larceny charge. And a warrant was issued for his arrest when he failed to show up in court. Four years later, he was arrested in Manhattan as a fugitive and was returned to Brockton, where the larceny charge was dropped when he paid a fine of $1,000. But while Gambino was being arrested for petty crimes, high-level moves were being made in the local mob landscape, which would soon be engulfed in the Castellammarese War, which pitted Joe Masseria against another local crime boss named Salvatore Maranzano. And on April 15th, 1931, Masseria was killed in a hit engineered by Lucky Luciano, at which point Maranzano took over and established the five families. With the initial five including the Gagliano, Luciano, Profaci, Maranzano, and Mangano families. And after this major restructuring, Gambino and his cousins were really absorbed into the newly formed Mangano family led by Vincent Mangano. By this point, Carlo had found his footing in the underworld and ran an incredibly successful bootlegging racket, and it's likely that this was a factor in him being made a capo at just 29 years old in 1931. Gambino clearly thrived in this reborn mafia and before long was a top earner for the family, and with money from his illegal rackets, Gambino bought restaurants and other legit fronts. Even after the repeal of Prohibition, he allegedly continued selling untaxed alcohol, and according to reports cited by the FBI, he failed to pay millions in taxes on his product. But this would lead to his first legitimate jail time. And in 1937, Gambino was arrested and sentenced to 22 months at Lewisburg for tax evasions related to operating a million-dollar distillery in Philadelphia. But eight months into the sentence, the conviction was thrown out, and Carlo was once again a free man. And when he was back on the streets, he branched out during World War II and started selling ration stamps on the black market. The stamps came out of the OPA's office, and at first, Carlo's crew would steal them. Then, when the government started hiding them in banks, he made contact and the OPA men would sell him the stamps. In all, by the war's end, Gambino had made millions through the stamps as well as the bootlegging. And despite the rules Gambino would enforce later in life, by the mid-40s, he even got involved in the narcotics trade, and traveled to Palermo, Sicily several times to set up the routes and make the deals. But by the 1950s, the Mangano family would have to deal with their first big power shift, as the family's underboss, Albert Anastasia, was hungry to move to the top. In 1951, the family's boss, Vincent Mangano, disappeared without a trace, while his brother Philip was found dead no one was ever charged for the killings and vincent's body was never found but it's generally believed that anastasia murdered them both after being called to face the commission anastasia refused to accept guilt for the mangano murders but anastasia did claim that vincent mangano had been planning to kill him however anastasia had already been running the family in vincent mangano's absence and commission members were intimidated by him So with the support of Frank Costello, the commission confirmed Anastasia's rise to boss of the family. And once he was in that position, he made Carlo Gambino his concierge a move that would come back to bite him. And while Anastasia was fostering his own downfall in his first few years as boss, another mobster was planning a move that would change the landscape of the five families. Frank Costello's underboss, Fiore Genovese, had been wanting to take control of the family ever since Lucky Luciano left it in the hands of Costello in 1936, and to do that he would have to kill Costello, but he couldn't do that without also eliminating his staunch ally, Albert Anastasia, so Genovese started looking for allies. He used Anastasia's brutal behavior against him in an effort to win supporters, portraying Anastasia as an unstable killer who threatened to bring law enforcement pressure down on the mob. In addition, Genovese pointed out that Anastasia had been selling memberships to his crime family for $50,000 apiece, a clear violation of commission rules that infuriated many high-level mobsters. And over the next few years, Genovese was able to secretly win the support of Anastasia's newly minted consigliere, Carlo Gambino, offering him the leadership of the family in return for cooperating. By early 1957, Genovese decided to move on Costello, and on May 2, 1957, Vincent Giganti shot and wounded Costello outside of his apartment building. And although the wound was superficial, it persuaded Costello to relinquish his power to Genovese and retire. This infuriated Anastasia so much that Joe Bonanno even later credited himself with arranging a sit-down where he kept Anastasia from immediately going to war with Genovese in response. But he wouldn't have to worry about it for long, because on October 25th, 1957, the pair carried out Gambino's side of the deal and Albert Anastasia was gunned down inside the Park Sheraton Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. Some believe that Gambino gave the contract to Joe Profaci, who then gave it to Joe Gallo and Carmine Persico, who carried out the hit. While others claim that Gambino ordered a capo named Joseph Biondo to kill Anastasia, and Biondo gave the contract to a squad of Gambino mobsters led by Stephen Armone and Stephen Gramata. Regardless, Carlo was expected to be proclaimed the new boss of what would soon be renamed the Gambino family at the November 1957 Appalachian meeting called by Vito Genovese to discuss the future of Cosa Nostra in light of his takeover. But when the meeting was raided by police, to the detriment of Genovese's reputation, Gambino's appointment was postponed to a later meeting in New York City. Once the official boss, he named Biondo his underboss, and Joseph Riccobono became his consigliere. And with his administration in place, Gambino was about to turn the family into a money-making machine, expanding into territories and rackets they hadn't tried before. He quickly took almost complete control of labor unions on the New York and New Jersey waterfront, at JFK Airport, and in the trucking, garbage, construction, and garment industries along the entire East Coast. Under Gambino, the family gained strong influence in the construction industry and acquired behind-the-scenes control of Teamsters Local 282 which controlled access to most building materials in the New York City area and could literally bring most construction jobs in New York City to a halt. He also had a hand in Meyer Lansky's offshore gaming houses in Cuba and the Bahamas, a lucrative business at the time. And before long, the Gambino family, which totaled 500 soldiers and over a 1,000 associates in the 1960s, was bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars a year, making them one of the most powerful in the nation. But Gambino was also making loads of money personally. And in addition to his illegal income, Gambino owned meat markets, bakeries, restaurants, nightclubs, linen supply companies, and so on. And despite the anti-drug edict that he would establish, according to the Bureau of Narcotics, by 1958, Carlo and his brother Paul controlled smuggling activities between the Sicilian Mafia and the U.S. on behalf of Lucky Luciano. He was also able to forge strong ties with mob bosses in New England, New Jersey, New Orleans, Florida, Chicago, California, Pennsylvania, and Detroit, among others. But he wasn't content yet, and Gambino continued to try and further his position. For one, Gambino and Lucky Luciano allegedly helped pay part of a $100,000 down payment to a Puerto Rican drug dealer to falsely implicate Vito Genovese in a drug deal and he was subsequently sentenced to 15 years in 1959 for drug offenses. Then, in 1962, Carlo Gambino's oldest son, Tommy, married Tommy Lucchese's daughter, Frances, and as part of the union, Lucchese gave Gambino a piece of his rackets at JFK Airport. But it wouldn't be long before Carlo would really run into his first problems as boss. And in 1964, Joe Bonanno, head of the Bonanno family, and the new boss of the Profaci family named Joseph Maglioccio, conspired to kill Gambino and his allies on the commission. But they entrusted the job to Joseph Colombo, who instead revealed the plot to Gambino. The commission, led by Gambino, forced Maglioccio to resign and hand over his family to Colombo while Bonanno fled New York, leaving Gambino one of the most powerful leaders within the five families. But in the mid-1960s, Carlo also had to rebuild his administration. For one, in 1965, Gambino became dissatisfied with his underboss Joseph Biondo's independence. Because while working with boss of the Decalvacanti family, Sam Decalvacanti, Biondo gained a share of the profit from a sanitation landfill in New Jersey. However, Biondo hid his new revenue from Gambino to avoid sharing it with the family. So when Decalvacanti revealed the deception to Gambino, he replaced Biondo as underboss with a capo named Anilio della Croce. Then, when his consigliere, Joseph Riccobono, died of natural causes at the age of 81, he replaced him with a higher up in the family named Joseph N. Gallo. But Gambino had other problems to deal with in the coming years, and in 1970, he was indicted on charges of conspiring to hijack an armored car carrying $3 million, and was arrested on March 23, 1970. He was released on $75,000 bail, and was never brought to trial because of his health. That same year, the Supreme Court upheld a 1967 order that he had previously appealed, demanding that he be deported, because he had entered the country illegally. But when the government tried to carry out the order, Carlo was rushed to the hospital after he suffered a heart attack. However, this didn't stop Gambino from exerting control over the other four families in New York's underworld. For one, some believe that Gambino used his power to orchestrate the shooting of Joseph Colombo, as he and his allies weren't happy about Colombo's public profile. It wouldn't stop there, though. After Vito Genovese died in prison in 1969, a mobster named Philip Lombardo became the new boss of the family, but would really take a backseat role, running the family through numerous front bosses. The first of which was a mobster named Thomas Tommy Ryan Eboli. However, Eboli wanted to be the real head of the family, and to further his advancement, he borrowed a few million dollars from Carlo Gambino to fund a new drug trafficking operation. But it didn't take long for law enforcement to shut down Eboli's drug racket and arrest most of his crew. And when Gambino and his underboss, Onilio della Croach, allegedly came to Eboli for their money back, he didn't have it. In response, Gambino allegedly ordered Eboli's murder. However, it's believed that Gambino merely used the debt as an excuse to replace Eboli as the Genovese family's front boss with a Gambino ally named Frank Funzi Thierry. As a result, on July 16th, 1972, as Eboli sat in a parked car outside of his girlfriend's apartment in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, he was shot five times in the head and neck by a gunman in a passing truck, killing him instantly. And sure enough, in the wake of Eboli's death, Funzi Thierry was made the new Genovese front boss and would hold the position until 1980. But Carlo still wasn't satisfied, and by the end of 1972, Gambino was working on a dramatic reorganization of the five families, the likes of which hadn't been seen since 1931. He wanted to rid the mob of hundreds of members, then rebuild it by inducting only select men who had proven their loyalty. It was even preparing to open the books in 1973, the first time since the Appalachian meeting. The first two families on the chopping block were the Lucchese and Colombo families, then the Bonanos, And in the end, Gambino's ultimate goal was to create one giant crime family, even looking to absorb the Genovese family, who was considered to be at least as or more powerful than the Gambinos. Though, this wasn't an unprecedented move, at least on a smaller scale, as other New York mob bosses had previously considered doing away with the Bonano family. For example, New Jersey crime boss Sam DeCalvicanti had been consulted during the Bananas War, which concluded with the commission expelling Joe Bonanno from his position as boss. However, according to DeCalvicanti's recorded conversations, the commission also went a step further by talking about distributing the Bonanno family's territory. According to the conversation, this even included giving the Bonanno family's Montreal faction to Stefano Magadino, boss of the Buffalo crime family at the time. And it's no surprise as to why Gambino wanted to reorganize, because by this point, 20% of known mafia members were under indictment by the FBI alone. Another motivation was the fact that bosses like Vito Genovese, Joe Profaci, and Tommy Lucchese had died and were succeeded by less forceful leaders. As a result, some of the families had become weak and undisciplined as their members grew careless. At the time, a mobster named Carmine Tramunti was running the Lucchese family, while Anthony Corallo was behind bars, and Gambino clearly had him in the crosshairs. Earlier in 1970, an operation was revealed in which a Lucchese capo named Paul Vario had been bugged for six months without anyone finding out, and the operation led to 678 subpoenas and numerous indictments, including one for Carmine Tramunti. And though law enforcement officials expected the alleged merging into one family would take several years, Gambino was obviously never able to pull it off, likely only because he would run out of time. And for most of the early to mid-1970s, Gambino battled health problems, finally succumbing to heart disease on October 15, 1976, at his Long Island waterfront home. But before he went, he pulled a move that no one expected, one that would cause a huge schism in the family that he had been building for the past 20 years. And contrary to what everyone thought would happen before his passing, Gambino had appointed his cousin Paul Castellano to succeed him over his underboss Neil Delacroach. Gambino appeared to believe that the family would benefit from Castellano's focus on white-collar businesses, and Delacrooche at the time was imprisoned for tax evasion and was unable to contest Castellano's succession. Castellano officially became boss of the Gambino family at a meeting on November 24th, 1976, with Delacroach present. Castellano arranged for Delacroach to remain as underboss while directly running traditional Cosa Nostra activities such as extortion, robbery, and loan sharking. And while Delacroach accepted Castellano's ascension, the deal effectively split the Gambino family into rival factions. And though it's entirely hypothetical, tons of people today still debate the what-ifs around Gambino's final decision as boss, so I figured I'd give you guys my take on it. For one, I obviously think Neo Della Croce should have been made boss upon Carlos' death. He had served as his underboss for over 10 years, and had proved to be just a really loyal Kozunostra guy. He was also incredibly well-respected, not only within the Gambino family, but also within the wider Five families. But there was just no way Carlo was going to give him the job. He put family above all else, and that's the one thing that Castellano had over Delicroach. Blood ties. So there's really nothing that could have been done to stop his ascension to Boss. However, I think the key to the cause of the rebellion that would come in the years to follow was Castellano, because the biggest mistake that was made was leaving Croach on as underboss. Because with Croach as his second in command, the family split. Those who worked the street and were involved in more traditional mob rackets really started to answer to Delacroach instead of Castellano, like his protege, John Gotti. While mobsters who were involved in white collar crimes like Castellano respected his newly found power, effectively creating two families in one. If Castellano was smart, he would have made Tommy Bellotti his underboss from the jump and kept Delacroach on as his consulier or just a senior advisor directly with the administration. That way, he could have retained Delacroche's influence and wisdom without fracturing the family the way he did. But that's really all I have for you guys today. I hope you all thoroughly enjoyed today's show and tune back in next week for episode 47. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating and follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at TheBlackHandPod. And feel free to reach out with feedback, suggestions, and comments. Also, please consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at the Black Hand Pod as well. But with that said, I hope you all have a great rest of your day. This is your host, Bliss Grieve, signing out.